Uh, thank you so much, Greg and company. Really appreciate your leadership and service to us. Hope you're encouraged by our routine uh, worship leaders and, and what they bring to the table. So grateful uh, to you guys. Well, you have found us here in part six of seven of a series we're calling Engendered Species, Rediscovering the Beauty of God's Design. I am realizing that without thinking about it, I'm rubbing my hands together. <clears throat> it's not because of the topic that we have to talk about. It's just that I am cold. Okay? I am cold, and I'm going to work on that uh, while I'm up here. But I get to walk around at least, all right? and you, you get to sit there. But uh, boy, it is, a, it is a chilly morning for me. Well, hey, uh, this morning is going to be a fun uh, topic. We're going to continue to talk a little bit about um, what a woman is. And so, boy, you, you have found it. I may be wringing my hands, or maybe you're going to be wringing your hands as the series, uh, as the message goes on. Um, this series is built on, in case you're new this morning, and, or, or just as a reminder to, to you if you're a regular attender, this series is built on this um, assumption, this belief, that we are living in and our young people are growing up in a world that is by and large attempting to strip away distinctions within gender. That it would be better, in fact, some um, experts, quote-unquote, are, are calling for, would push for what we call gender extinction. That we're, we're just stripping away distinctions. And I tend to believe that we become less human rather than more human when we do that. And so in this series, we're trying to talk about the fact that as a uh, male and female, we've been, quote-unquote, engendered or given gender by God. And if that's the case, there must be a design or a reason for that. And so this series is meant to kind of tease those things out in the matter of weeks we've had. So to bring you up to speed real quick, the first question we asked in this series, I said it was a kingpin of it all, and that is this, is there a moral authority on this issue? In other words, who wins the day on this discussion? Is it just the smartest person in the room, the most influential, the person with the most data? You know, where do we go to find truth? I put my cards on the table and said, I go back to the book of Genesis, I go to God's word, and I say, if, if there was a God who created, and he was there before anyone else, he has the right to create as he will. And so for me, the moral authority is a God of the Bible, the scriptures is going to be my guide for this. The second question we then uh, began to wrestle with, and that is this idea of the image of God and man, that we said that humanity has value because God has imaged us with his image, if you will, that gender equality has to do with understanding that we share the image of God between male and female. And that image also means gender distinction, that God has created male and female, and that is part of the image. Now, then we had to ask the question, if that is also true, then what does it mean to be a man? And this was message number uh, three, I believe it is. What does it mean to be a man? So we asked that question, we answered it this way, and we said, this is a man. A man is a biologically born male who grows into his role of headship by using his strength to serve those around him through ordering the world for their benefit. This is the first time you're seeing that. Sorry that I can't explain it anymore, but there it is right here. This is, this is the, the work of a man. A man, a biologically born male, grows into his role of headship by using his strength to serve those around him through ordering the world for their benefit. We went to Genesis chapter 1, then Genesis 2, and now we're going to go into Genesis 3 this morning, that God put Adam in the garden to work and take care of it. And this is what it kind of means to be a man, is to, to do this. And we kind of flesh that and tease that out. Then we asked the second question, potentially more dangerous question last week, and that was this question, what is a woman? 
Only dangerous because what right does a man have to speak to something he has no experience on, which is what I attempted to do last week. Um, uh, I, I rarely tweet, okay, but I did tweet last week. I really felt special as I tweeted. Um, hashtag no experience or something like that is what I said, that I have no experience on the topic, but nonetheless, here we go. Let's talk about what does it mean to be a woman, because if it's true that God has made you as a woman, just like he made man as a man with image and purpose, what does it mean to be a woman? Big, big question. Same as man. Big question. Here's what we said last week. Offered this for your consideration last week. Said this. A woman is a biologically born female who functions as an indispensable partner to the man in carrying out the work of human flourishing. Again, we talked about all that last week. If you want to kind of pull that out and how we got to that, why we got there, just pull up last week's podcast and you can hear what went on behind the scenes there. But that is, again, out of Genesis chapter 2, the role of woman. Now, this morning, I want to press this out a little bit further, and I would like to uh, give a picture of how does a woman carry out her purpose. If this is our, our working definition of a woman, what does it mean to be a woman? Why would God create woman? What does it mean to work that out? How do you do that? Now, to begin, I want you to know this, that every um, woman, as well as every man, but every woman for this morning, functions in a particular context. For example, whenever you're hiring somebody for a job, you're hiring them not just to do the job, but to do the job in your company or in your place of employment. So um, for illustrative purposes, we hired you know, Kevin Hackett here a couple months ago, and um, we hired him for a role, pastor of student ministries, but not just the role. He needed to understand if he's going to do that job, what is the church like? Because doing that job in this context is different than doing that job in Texas. And it's different than doing that job in Africa. It's different than doing that job in another state. It's just different, not because of the job might be different, but the context dictates how the job gets fulfilled, right? So, how is it that you fulfill your role as a woman? But the bigger question is, what is the context in which you are functioning as a woman? I want to go to the book of Genesis to lay out the context, and then I want to talk what, the, what this looks like fleshed out. So, if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 is going to be setting the context, setting the stage for us. If you don't own a Bible, by the way, there's one in the pew right around you. That is our gift to you. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give that to you, let you take that from here, read that, find the life of God in those pages, engage that, wrestle with that, fight with that, you know, work that through in your life and see what God has to say. We believe that God speaks um, with life and hope in the scriptures, and that as we engage that, we can learn more about how we are to live here as well. So Genesis chapter 3, first book in the Bible, third chapter. Here's the context of how a woman is going to work out her role, and I want to take you to chapter 3 and verse 16. I'm going to read it and then talk about what happened before and then try to explain it. Pulling out one verse, to the woman, this is God, he said... I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. I am I'm ripping it in a way out of context. You should know. This is after the Bible records what theologians call the fall of man, where you've, you've heard of this, most likely, even if you haven't been in church before. You know, that old image of uh, the apple. It, we don't really think it was an apple, but whatever. You know, so you eat the apple, the forbidden fruit. Okay, you know, Eve eats and hands that to Adam, and then God comes in the garden, and they had hidden, and then they're like, "Hey, you know, we ran from you because we were scared, we were naked, and we were afraid." And God said, "Who told you that you were naked?" And they're like, "Oh, 
caught. <clears throat> Shouldn't have said that. You know, boom, you know, we're caught. And then God delivers judgment on the serpent and then on the woman, later on the man. And on the woman, here's the judgment delivered on the woman in verse 16. Again, two things, two, two punishments for this. I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. Number one, in pain, with pain you'll give birth to children. Number two, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now, if you come to this morning and you think traditionally that the, what churches and conservative churches say about women is that they're really only good for two things. One is for having children and two is for taking care of men. Like you could find that here. You could be like, see, this is it. This is all that women are for because this is what the punishment is. Now, in fairness, early on here, we're looking at what is it that as a helper to the woman in the work of human flourishing, number one, who can give birth to children? Men can't. Only women can. I mean, just, that's just the way it works. So, yes, there is a primary role of giving birth to children that simply as men we are not able nor really want to ever do, right? I mean, that's just not something that God has wired us and built in us to do. Secondarily, the bigger question is, what does this last part of this verse mean? This is a big question. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. What in the world does that mean? And is this suggesting that the way a woman helps is simply by doing two things well? Number one, having kids. Number two, taking care of your husband. Is that really it? To be honest, this is kind of confusing. When they're confusing passages, we try to go to other passages to bring clarity to them. So, with your finger still in 3.16, I want you to turn if you need to, but look at least over to chapter 4 of Genesis and verse 7. Chapter 4 and verse 7 brings clarity to chapter 3 and verse 16. Chapter 4, verse 7b, okay? And you'll see there the second part of that verse. God is speaking to Cain, and he says, But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. What's happening with Cain is Cain brought a sacrifice to God that was not um, appropriate. Abel brought a good sacrifice. Cain brought a weak sacrifice, one that wasn't worthy of being brought to God. Cain realizes this, and God is telling him, Cain, Cain, I want you to know, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. In other words, Cain, I know what's in your heart. You are angry that Abel's sacrifice was approved and yours is not. In your heart, you're going to be tempted to want to hurt your brother or take your anger out in an inappropriate way on your brother. Don't do it. Don't give in to the thing that is attempting to master you. If you know the story at all, what happens next is Cain does do exactly that. He gives in to the anger, and he takes Abel out for a long walk in the field, and he kills him. Sin was crouching at its door. Its desire was to master him, but Cain needed to master it, and he didn't. And he was mastered by it. Pain brought into the world again. What in the world does this mean then when we back this up to verse 16 in chapter 3? Because the same language is used. You should know this. Not only are the same Hebrew words used, but the exact same structure and syntax and order of the sentences are used. So the author, when he's writing chapter 3 and verse 16 and chapter 4 verse 7, however you understand 4-7 is how you understand 3-16. So if it makes sense to you that We've all had that experience that something is desiring to have us, sin is desiring to have us, then we have to take that interpretation back to chapter 3 and verse 16. 
So what is it saying? That essentially, in this moment, after Adam and Eve eat of the fruit, what God is saying here is, Eve, there's going to be a desire in your heart that wasn't here before. There's going to be a desire to do something wrong. There's going to be a desire to struggle for power with your husband that wasn't there before the fall. And then the end of the verse says, and he will rule over you. By the way, Eve, now things are going to be difficult between the two of you. He will either rule over you by domination. His own anger, his own sin will come over on top of you. And you will be oppressed by that. Or, you know, it's going to come in some other way. There is a fundamental change in the nature of the woman and the man after the fall. And this verse explains it. Now, let me explain it to you this way through a female theologian, if I can, Susan Foe. She wrote it this way, and she said, These words mark the beginning of the battle of the sexes. As a result of the fall, man no longer rules easily. He must fight for his headship. Sin has corrupted, check this out, both the willing submission of the wife and the loving headship of the husband. The rule of love founded in paradise is replaced by struggle, tyranny, and domination. This is the context in which a woman will work out her role. Your only experience and my only experience is in a world post-fall. Our only experience is in a world in which sin is a part of our rhythm of life. We get tastes of God's ideals, but we never get the full feast of the beauty that he has designed for the world, the fullness that he designed for you and me. We get glimpses of it here and there, but nothing like the way it was in the garden. After the fall, this role of women is going to be worked out with a power struggle with men. With men struggling, women struggling, this is just the way it will be. And here's what happens with our desires, if you can understand it this way. The fall reorders desires from God's ideals to man's ideas. This is what the fall does. It takes desires that are right in their own right, and it reorders them from God's ideals to my ideas. All of a sudden, you know what? Here's what I think I should do. I think I should take Abel out in the field, and we're going to have at it in the field. I mean, I know that God took his sacrifice, but come on. Mine was fine. It was fruit. There was nothing wrong with that. It was a sacrifice for me just as much as it was for him, and I have an idea what I should do. And with the fall, it reorders desires from God's ideals to man's ideas. And our ideas of what it means to function as a woman and a man get kind of reordered and changed and becomes difficult sometimes to see what is right to do and how we interact with each other. And so I want to give you a picture of what I think the Bible teaches about what... um, the purpose or what a picture of a woman working out her role looks like. But I also want to say this. That happens in the context of the post-fall world where there's great struggle, great difficulty of trusting that men are out for your good because many times you've experienced that they're not. Or that sometimes men are simply passive and don't lead and don't serve when they should. You've experienced that. Well, what of that? There's a lot of issues that we have related to men and women that are a part of the context in which we work out our role, but in the scriptures, we're looking at the ideal. That's what we're going to do this morning. So, if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn uh, to the book of Proverbs. I want to take you there, and I want to read another passage first, but I want to take you to the book of Proverbs. Because in the book of Proverbs, at the very end, is a passage that 
gives maybe the greatest clarity that I think I can find about what it looks like for a woman to work out her role. Um, And very, very powerful passage, Proverbs chapter 31. Now, before I get into that, I want to speak first um, to single women here this morning. So if you're single this morning and you may be getting married someday or you are single and you may not be getting married someday, you wish to but it may not happen or you are fine not to let it happen or you are uh, widowed, again, single, a whole variety of reasons why we have single women and and all are totally uh, legitimate here. Single women, okay, what, what should we look at? In the book of 1 Corinthians, I'm just going to throw it up here rather than turn to it. 1 Corinthians 7.34 an unmarried woman or virgin is considered, uh, excuse me, concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. Here's what I want to say to you if you're single this morning. You do not need to get married to fulfill God's design for your life. Like, you simply don't. You are, no, you are not any less of a woman if you are not married. It just simply isn't the case. If the purpose of the woman was to make a man not lonely, then you better get married. Okay? But if the purpose of a woman isn't that narrow, then let's go. And in your singleness, give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. Serve with your strength, with your creativity, with your ingenuity, with your intelligence, with your heart and passions. Serve with great fervor for Him. You are not any less of a full woman, or expressing your full femininity in your singleness. It just simply isn't biblically true. You just simply can't make a case for that. So I want you to hear that and know that. All right, Really important for me to, to, to explain that, communicate that to you, to hear that and to see that. You do not become a woman when you get married. You do not become a woman when you have children. Simply not the case. All right, And men, let me say this. Don't be intimidated by smart single women. Let's not make a culture where women feel like I have to kind of dumb myself down so I'm I'm not intimidating the guy who's who's an idiot over here, right? Okay, I mean, let's just not make that a deal. I mean, men, if you're intimidated by a woman who's smarter than you, man, get on your game, all right? Get on your game. Do a little bit of reading, all right? I mean, do a little bit of self-growth. I mean, do a little bit of, of challenge for yourself, but do not create a culture where women feel like they cannot engage or think intelligently about the world and about the universe in which we live. That that is not healthy, fair, or good. We want our women, young women, middle-aged women, we want our women to thrive and grow. And the better they are, I'm telling you, and you know this, the better we all are. The partnership they are with human flourishing. All right? All right. Now, with that being said, let me go to Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31, beginning at verse 10, is where I want to go because this is, I'll tell you why this is cool. You have a mom giving advice to a son about women. So, again, can I get in a lot of trouble with that? I don't know if I can, because we got a mom talking about what it means to be a woman. I think that's pretty good, all right? So here we go. I tell you, this can be heavy, all right? If you're a woman, this can be heavy, because it can feel like a really difficult target to hit. But this is ideal stuff, all right? This is ideal. I kind of laid that out already. We're talking ideal. So let's, let's kick it off here in verse 10 through 12, first three verses to start. And here, here she goes, this mom talking to her son about women. And she says this, A wife of noble character who can find. She is worth far more than rubies. Her husband has full confidence in her and lacks nothing of value. She brings him good and not harm all the days of her life. And just pause it. 
If I could do for your Bible what I did with mine, I color-coded this. If you're a color-coding person, you would think that's awesome. If you're not, you're like, this guy is a total nerd. I knew it, but now I really know that he is. And here's why I did that. Because there's so many different roles that are worked out in this this passage. We have the role right now that we just did in three verses, the role of a wife. In in a couple of minutes, we're going to look at the role of uh, a woman at work. And then we're going to look at a woman with motherhood. And then we're going to look at the personal development of women. And this mom deals with different roles of women throughout this passage. These first three deal with the role of the wife. And it begins very traditionally. Again, if you come to church, a conservative church, Bible-believing church, and you think, um, man, as a woman, here's what the church is going to say, be a good wife, you know, and make dinner for your husband when he comes home, you know, barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen, that's what, isn't that in the Bible somewhere, right? I mean, that's what churches believe, and of course, no, it's not, all right? So it begins traditionally, but check it out. Pause on this for a minute, okay? Pause on this. Look at verse 10. Look at the question that she asks. A wife of noble character, who can find? In other words, we can't find these women. Like, son, I have looked around, and I don't see anybody good for you. Like, I can't find them. They're hard to find. In other words, you don't become an awesome wife just by getting married. Anybody can get married. You don't just stumble into being a woman of noble character. I mean, that's easy to do to get married, relatively speaking. But if you want to be a wife of noble character, here's what the Bible says. Who can find these women? Can someone please help us run a search to find Women of noble character, who can find them? They are worth, she's worth far more than rubies. Money cannot buy the value of a wife of noble character. Just simply cannot buy it. Invaluable. Her value is understood to be profound. She's working out her fullness, that her husband lacks nothing, and he has an incredible life the way that she lays it out here. She brings him good and not harm all the days of her life. You see verse 12. She brings him good and not harm all the days of her life. If you're a, a wife this morning and you want something practical to take away, let me give you this. This is practical. This is free. This may or may not be a part of the big picture, but this I think is very important. Boys grow up learning how to fight with their bodies. Girls grow up learning how to fight with their words, which is why boys find it hilarious when girls try to fight with their bodies in school, by the way. A cat fight. Oh, look, isn't that cute? And everyone starts laughing. Meanwhile, the girls are so angry. They're pulling hair and all that. And the boys are like, isn't that neat? You know, look at how funny that is. Meanwhile, boys are like, we have an issue, man. Let's take it outside. Right? And whoever is the biggest, we're going to solve it. Girls, I, I've heard it said, girls can be nasty in how they talk. Because they've learned to be cutting with their words. This is why in, in the book of Proverbs, in three different places, Solomon will, will say, uh, number one, uh, it's, it's better to live on the corner of a roof than in a house with a quarrelsome or contentious wife. Later on, he'll say, listen, <laughs> brother, you have a quarrelsome wife, go to the desert. It is better for you out there that's Proverbs 21.19. It's better for you in the desert, man. Last night it was four degrees. Live on the corner of your roof than in a house with a quarrelsome woman. That's exactly what the text is saying. You will die in the desert, but that will be better than living in a house with a quarrelsome woman because the words that you use as a wife are powerful to your husband. They weigh more than any other living human being has. When you say, I'm proud of you, thank you, 
for doing what you do. When you stop and you use your words to gird up and strengthen your husband, I'm telling you, it's powerful. And conversely, when you use your words to kind of cut, express disappointment in a thoughtless way, I'm telling you, there's nothing that will cut down a man faster than a wife whose words cut him. And so here's the opening. A wife of noble character who can find. She does him good and no harm all the days of her life. Yeah, but you don't know how much of a jerk he is. You don't know how passive he is. You don't know what he... The gospel doesn't call us to give people what they deserve. The gospel calls us to redemption. The next eight verses talk not just about the role of a woman as a wife, but the next eight verses talk about the role of a woman at work. It's very important for you to see. The Bible is not just saying that a woman needs to fill her role as a wife. Check out verses 13 on down to 20. Verse 13, she selects wool and flax and works with eager hands. She is like the merchant ships, bringing her food from afar. You see the verbs that are used? Like She wants to work. She's with eager hands. She wants to go out. She travels outside the home. She's like merchant ships, bringing food from afar. In other words, it's not, she's not, just not okay with, I want to do meatloaf every night. Like every night we're doing meatloaf. She's just not okay with that. I want to go out. I want to travel. I want to have a little bit of adventure, maybe some risk, bring some color and vitality to my home. Verse 15, she gets up while it's still dark. She provides food for her family and portions for her servant girls. She considers a field and buys it. Imagine coming home, hey, what did you do today, honey? I bought a field. Wow. What's for dinner, <laughs> you know? Woo. Okay, out of her earnings, she plants a vineyard. But listen, she's ambitious. I mean, this is mom talking to king's son about what to look for in a woman. Listen, look for someone who's ambitious. Look for someone who's an entrepreneur. Look for someone who can create, who can design, who can imagine, who can think financially. I mean, this is exactly what she's saying. Like, this is a good and noble thing. It continues in verse 17. She sets about her work vigorously. Her arms are strong for her tasks. She sees that her trading is profitable. Look at that. She's making money. She's wise. She's business savvy. And her lamp does not go out at night. In her hand, she holds the distaff and grasps the spindle with her fingers. She's able to, to work with, with the clothing there. She opens her arms to the poor and extends her hands to the needy. See that? That she's so wise in her business work, right, in her functioning, even economically, that she realizes that her work is not for her own benefit. Verse 20, that she rolls out again, she opens her arms to the poor, extends her hands to the needy because she has something to offer to them. In her work, in her development, in her growth, she has things to offer to those who need it. She realizes that her work is not just for her own. That The point being here is that for the woman, your role is not just find a man and make him not lonely. It just isn't that. Okay, here's this other piece of being an indispensable partner to the man in the work of human flourishing. Man, help the home, help the man, help your life, help the, your children grow and develop in your community. I mean, get involved in some work here. Now, I'm not making a case that you've got to go work outside the home or stay in the home. That's not at issue here. The issue is simply the energy, the creativity, the point of making yourself 
busy for the work of human flourishing. That may mean vocational employment. It may not mean that at your stage of life, whatever. Point being, what is it that your hands are doing to work for the good of those around you? Check out verse 21. This isn't the only thing for the woman in verses 13 to 20. Because now it turns to talking about her role as a mom. When it snows, she has no fear for her household, for all of them are clothed in scarlet. She makes coverings for her bed. She is clothed in fine linen and purple. In other words, she gives time in all of what she does to stop and think about her home. She thinks, if it gets cold here, will my children be taken care of? That's mom stuff. Will our decor in our home provide not just something good to look at, but also um, a place of safety and comfort for my family? That's mom stuff there. That's part of the deal of working out your role as a mom with children. And the net result of all this is in verse 23. Her husband is respected at the city gate where he takes his seat among the elders of the land. Now, I need to pause on this and use this as a bridge to talk about the role of women in the church because it doesn't show up in this passage otherwise. So this is my closest bridge I can get to to talk about the role of women in the church. A whole other message series, we could talk about this for a long time. My thesis in my master's work was the role of women in the church, right? So I understand the, the, the big deal. I'm not going to go big deal here. Let me just make it real easy. When we read this passage, here's the husband, respected the city gate where he takes a seat among the elders of the land. Simply understood, his role is to function as the elder in that, one of the elders in that land. When we talk about the role of men and women in the church, at Grace Point Church, we believe that the Bible lays out that the role of elder or spiritual authority in the church is reserved for men. We don't believe that because we think we're superior. We don't believe that because we think men are smarter. We believe that because we believe that's the role that God has laid out for men in the scriptures. We believe that the church models the home in that way. That the role of spiritual leadership and authority in the home is first given to men to say, men, let's get it right. And that men are given the opportunity to say, if you, if you have a home, right, you have a wife to help you and make you better, an indispensable partner to the man in the role of human flourishing. That elders in a church, when done right, lead with a servant attitude to draw out for the congregation the best for God's glory, not with oppression or difficulty or anything like that. In fact, the natural reading of this passage in Proverbs 31, you are not going to be left with a feeling of, man, what an oppressive man that man must be. You're just not left with that feeling. As we read through the passage, it's just like, oh yeah, he's out there being an elder, and this is all that the wife is doing. And when you read all that the wife is doing, you're like, holy cow, how can anyone do that? Let alone being an elder, really? Like, should the woman in verse chapter 31 be reaching for the role of elder, and only then will she feel satisfied? Is that what the mom is saying here to the son in chapter 31 of Proverbs? Is the, is the woman to be going for more than what she's been tasked with? It's just not the spirit of the text. And so we talk about the struggle of reordered desires and the battle of the sexes for power. I get that. And that can happen certainly within the church. But we believe that God's set out for us men to lead in that, 
to serve in that for the benefit of everybody. Not because men are smarter, not because men have more together, not at all. That's just the role, just like this guy has a role as being the elder, and it's not perceived to be dominant or domineering. Now, where it is dominant and domineering, we've got problems. We've got real elder-level spiritual authority issue problems that we're going to have to deal with if that is the case and that develops. But otherwise, we're talking roles, okay? We're not talking domination, okay? That's one piece that I wanted to speak to of where we're at there, all right? Now, let me go back to Proverbs 31, beginning or continuing then into verse 25. The next two verses lay out something even more for the woman. Uh, here we go, 25 and 26. She is clothed with strength and dignity, and she can laugh at the days to come. She speaks with wisdom, and faithful instruction is on her tongue. Again, this is about the personal development of the woman. Verse 26, she speaks with wisdom, and faithful instruction is on her tongue. In other words, you can go to this woman, and she will give you good advice regularly. Like, she's wise. And I, you know this, come on, you know this. This doesn't just happen. Like, you don't just get to be wise. You plan for that. You read for that. You're disciplined for that. You engage for that. You lead for that. You teach for that. You strive for that. You do not just become wise by drifting into wisdom. Nobody does that. Nobody's wise because it just happens to them. People who are wise are wise because they have developed intentional experiences. They have put themselves in challenging positions and they have grown. And here's the woman being pictured as one who, in a personal discipline kind of way, is challenging herself to grow, is challenging herself to be a, a student and a learner, one who can dispense wisdom regularly that you can look to and say, man, I don't know what to do, who should I call? I'm going to call her. She's wise. You know that doesn't just happen. We talk about the personal development of the woman. Finally, here in verses 27 and 29, we come back to the role of mom as a, as a woman. She watches over the affairs of her household. She does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children arise and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women do noble things, but you surpass them all. All right, husbands, happy Valentine's Day. You can use that for your wife this afternoon. Just tell them it was your idea, all right? But here's the thing, that she gives thought again to her home in her mind, in her activities, in her attention. She's thinking about the home. It's not just about the work. It's not just about personal development, not just about the role of the wife. It's about all this. It's a picture of the woman who carries out her role as one who helps with human flourishing in the home, with her husband, in her work engagements, her activities, in her personal development to help with human flourishing. And then it's, it's summarized this way. Because I'll say this, that this view of the woman is not archaic at all, at least not to me. This, this view of the woman is not um, Little House on the Prairie-like at, at all. This is not 1950s or you know, 1800s. This is not what the Bible lays out for women. It just isn't. This is extremely powerful. This is extremely powerful to stop and think, this is what a woman should do. You should develop yourself in all of these areas. To me, this is very empowering. Now, I'm not a woman, so maybe you would completely disagree. But to be encouraged biblically to say, listen, grow personally as a woman. Work hard on that. Work hard with the efforts of your hands, with your ideas, with your creativity, with your vision, with your entrepreneurship. Work hard with that. If you're going to be married, love well your one husband. 
Serve your children and your family. I mean, this isn't like just get married so you can have kids and, and put meatloaf on the table for dinner. This just isn't that picture. And here's what, what he says finally, what she says finally in verse 30. And this is so profound to me. So if you're a, a, woman, a young woman in particular, I really wish that you could just own this verse in your heart and it could really kind of change how you see the entire world about your identity. Verse 30, and if you've been in the church before, you've heard this, you've seen this. If not, man, here we go. Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. So, so look right at me if you're a young woman right now. Look right here. Our world, the social media world in which you are growing up in, is reducing your value to the qualities of your pictures. That your identity is not reduced to just being another pretty face. And if you believe that, and if that's what you're aiming for, you are selling yourself so, so short. Come on, come on. You know this. Come on, you know this. In your heart, you know this is true, that God has made you to be not just another pretty face, but to reorder your ideas with God's ideals. I mean, you, you know this... Study after study shows Instagram is actually creating more depression than encouragement among our young population. Right? Why? It's simple. You take a culture that's, that's interested in individualism and interested in um, an image-driven culture, and you give them a phone and say, take a picture of you only at your best time and post it as if it's normal. Right? And so what does that do within our hearts? Few people are like, man, that's so great. I'm so encouraged by how bad I look compared to other people. It's just like, wow, like no one rolls out of bed you know, at 6 in the morning with their hair going 200 different directions. I can't relate, but somehow that happened. And they post a picture of themselves then and are like, man, just, you know, just chilling. Like, you don't do that because you post only the best things about you. And here's what, here's what mom says to son about women. Listen, charm is deceptive. It is deceptive. Beauty is fleeting. But a woman who fears the Lord, that's something to... That's something to aim for. That's something to work for. A wife of noble character, come on, who can find? Who are these women? You want to just be another pretty face? Fine. Get the app that actually changes your selfie. You know those exist live? Like you can take a selfie and in the moment, within 10 seconds, you can make your teeth whiter, your face skinnier, your cheekbones more, more distinct. And in a, in a moment, you can change the way you look. If that is all that you want, man, have it. Go for it. Well, you know this is true. Charm is deceptive, beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And your life, and not just your life, but the lives of people around you will be so much better when you order your world around God's ideals and not just man's ideas. And here's the picture in Proverbs 31. You want to know what it means to be a woman, to grow, grow up to be a woman? There's an indispensable, indispensable partner in human flourishing. Personal development. Desire to work. Desire to grow in your character. To care for your children your family. To think about your future. To serve your husband if you're married. And if you're single, to give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. No wait for some man to help you with that. I have a statement and two questions for you. 
to wrap it up, and then we're going to be done. Single women, use your strengths where you find yourself now to bring about human flourishing. Don't wait for some man to kind of get it right and encourage you to do it, okay? Don't, don't wait for that. If there are men above you or around you or whatever kind of limiting that for you, be wise in how you work. But I'm just telling you, don't limit your strengths, single ladies, to wait for a man to invite you for something. Just go and serve and lead. And I'm telling you, if men, young men, are intimidated by that or feel like, ooh, she's too strong a woman, they need to get their act together. Come on. This, we do not need to limit our young women because men have issues. Okay, We just simply don't need to do that. It's foolishness. All right, that's just part of the... Ladies, use your strengths now. Don't wait for, for men to kind of say, come on. All right, now two questions. Number one, is there any part of my vision of womanhood that needs corrected? Is there any part of my vision of womanhood that needs corrected? And that could be number one. It could be that you had been thinking, you know, I, I thought the Bible was only about women getting married and having kids. It was kind of a big deal. Maybe I need to realize that, hey, there's a bigger picture here. About my energies, my effort. Maybe... You've devalued the value of being a wife. Maybe you've devalued children. Okay, you, you, we covered this last week that we live in a culture now that is devaluing that, and really since the 1970s has pushed us forward to say, man, women need to have equal role in the workplace. With the results showing that women are less happy now than they had been in the 70s. That that just not even Christian data. That's just data. Okay. That's what studies are showing right now. So what is your view of womanhood that needs to be changed? And maybe some of that is I need to remind myself of the value of being a mom, the value of being a wife, and the value of working. Right? And then finally this question. Is there any part of my vision of womanhood that is too small? In other words, have you been drawn down and thought, well, that's only for my husband. I can't dream about a future because it's only for my husband. Right? I mean, I can't... Um, hope too big for my my future because that's that's my my husband's role or that's you know my dad's role or you know, all that I'm going to do is I'm just going to be someone who gets married and hopefully my husband makes enough money and I can just stay at home and you know whatever you know the vision of womanhood in Proverbs 31 is so big that it feels if you're honest it feels impossible so I encourage you any vision of your womanhood that's too small any part of that that's too small. I encourage you to kind of lift that up a little bit and say, man, how can I get after some things that maybe I wasn't sure I could get after? All right. Now, let me say this. Next week, we're going to wrap this series up, and we're going to talk about a couple things that I think will be of great interest to you. Uh, number one is going to be if there's such a thing as male and female, and we try to wrap all this up, okay, try to wrap up men, women, um, do I get to choose if I can be male or female? And number two, do I get to choose who I can be attracted to? Now, we're going to talk about those issues. We're also going to talk about how to kind of parent through that and how to work through that if you have children, if you go to school with people who are working on transgender issues or homosexuality stuff, right? That's going to be part of the conversation. How should the Christian, the Christ follower, work forward on these issues within our community and within our churches, knowing this, that historically the church has not been great on this. We talked about that earlier. Our reputation is bad. We're perceived to be bigots. We're perceived to be backward thinking. And we're just not great on this issue. So how can we press into this as a church, as Christians, with truth and grace, love and care? What does that look like? We're going to try to wrap it all 
next Sunday here in Gendered Species Part 7. Let's pray together. Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to be in your word this morning and the great challenge this passage is, particularly to our young women, to those who are different stages of life and who are dealing with a whole variety of issues, identity issues, um, and, and, and on down the line. I pray that this passage will be an encouragement to our women here to reach and aim, target, dream, create, innovate, and feel tremendous value in their personhood. Tremendous value is being made in the image of God. Walking alongside the man in this work of human flourishing. That together as men and women, we can serve within our roles with great honor, respect, love, and care for one another. And encourage each other to be the best. That we can be not just for our benefit, but for the benefit of human flourishing around us. We thank you for what you can do with people whose hearts are fully committed to you. May ours be increasingly moved in that direction, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.